visitor. My name is Jeff Strong. I'm the senior pastor here at Nelson Covenant Church. Before we get into the sermon, uh, we're going to take some time just for uh, a short time of, of corporate prayer. And this is how it's going to work. I'm going to put the Lord's Prayer up on the screen. And I've broken it down into bullet points. And one of the most helpful things that has gotten me through times where my prayer life has been dry or I just find myself being overly repetitive of certain prayers is I pray the Lord's Prayer. And what I do is I, um, I, I take the Lord's Prayer and I kind of break it up thematically. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, etc., etc. And what I'll do is I'll just kind of sit with that, um, the Lord's Prayer, and then as things come to me along those topics, so maybe I think, uh, God, I, I, you know, give us this day our daily bread. God, I'm, I need this in my life. I'm asking you to provide this in my life. Or God, may your will be done in this area of my life, or in, uh, in our nation, or in, in the schools. And so what I thought we'd do this morning is uh, take a few minutes and just use this as a way to do corporate pr- prayer. And this is what we'll do. Um, I'll start, and then um, you're welcome to pray silently. You can pray out loud. You don't have to freak out and worry if, like, someone over here starts to pray out loud at the same time someone over here starts to pray. Totally still counts. God can handle it. Uh, in a lot of places uh, in African Christianity, what they do for corporate prayer is they have a time of corporate prayer, but they ask everybody to pray all at the same time about whatever they want. So it's, it sounds chaotic, but it's a beautiful tapestry. So if that ends up happening here, that's totally fine. Praying out loud isn't something that everyone feels comfortable with. That's totally fine. You can pray quietly. Um, but use this. Maybe, you know, take a moment, read through the Lord's Prayer, and say, maybe there's a, maybe there's a word or one of the themes here that sticks out to you, and just take a moment to pray. And then after we do that for a little bit, I'll, I'll close our time. God, we want to be a people who are learning from you how to pray. Learning how to put uh, your kingdom front and center in our lives. And that would be my prayer this morning. My prayer is that your kingdom would come in our lives, in this church, God, in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships, in our workplaces, God. I pray that your kingdom would come.
thank you, God, that we can come before you um, and that you embrace us and love us like a father, a good father. And God, as we gather here this morning, may that um, spirit of adoption, um, that sense that you have gathered us and you love us, you delight in us like a father delights in their firstborn, that that would overwhelm us, God. We thank you for the way in which you're continually revealing yourself to us and walking with us, even through difficult times. And now as we open up your word and learn in deeper ways what it means to walk through suffering in light of the resurrection, God, that you would uh, speak to us through your word and your spirit, God. Continue to form us and to be a people that pray um, openly and honestly before you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at a passage from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So it's 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 18. It's going to be on your screen, but I encourage you to... It's always good to use a hard copy Bible. Remind yourself where books are and get a sense where in God's story you are. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 18. This is Paul writing to a group of uh, pretty new Christians, many of whom are uh, not Jewish, kind of a mix of, of, of Jewish believers, but also new Gentile Christians, meaning some people who didn't grow up with any kind of sense of uh, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament. And he says these, these words. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God, and therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, We are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So today is one sermon. It's kind of primarily looking at one passage. And we're looking at how the resurrection changes how we understand and process suffering and hardship in our life. And that means, because it's one sermon and predominantly one text, today's going to be insufficient to completely cover that topic. It's a huge, huge topic. But I think what the text has to say to us this morning is really, really critical and important for us to hear. I don't move into this message lightly. I've gotten to know many of your stories over the last year, and I know that even right now, there are many people who are walking through pretty deep hardship, very difficult 
you're, you're, in, you're in a difficult season of suffering. For some of you, it feels as though you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe for some of us, on a Sunday, we walk in and we kind of look around the church and it looks like everyone's got their life together and everyone's happy. And um, not in a fake way, but just people are choosing to enter into this space with joy and and not complain about stuff. And so we think, oh, maybe everyone's life is free from trouble. Maybe I'm the only one who's suffering. Maybe I'm the only one who's carrying burdens. But my experience as a pastor over a decade has said, on any given Sunday, almost all of us walk into church carrying a hardship, moving through a time of suffering in at least a sphere of our life. Very few of us get to walk very long without having to face suffering. There's heartache, there's loss, there's hurt, there's pain. And those things are being carried by a lot of us a lot of the time. And so what I wanted to do this morning is look at a passage that has a lot to teach us about how the resurrection of Jesus changes how we understand and move through suffering here and now. In verse 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says something that it's easy to gloss over, but it's really important to catch and get. He says this, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And hidden in plain sight in in these few verses is this truth that is all over the New Testament, but I think Paul really names it here, and that is suffering is part of the Christian life. Suffering is a normative experience for Christians, The very first Christians and 2,000 years later, there has never been a time in church history or an enclave of Christian community that has ever been immune to suffering. Look at the words that Paul uses. He doesn't even gloss over it. He doesn't even try and minimize it. He says, we've been pressed. We've been perplexed. We've been persecuted. We've been struck down. And this theme that Christians face and have to go through suffering is something that the New Testament is very honest about. But it also raises a really huge tension point for those of us who call ourselves Christians because if Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's conquered sin and death and he's been installed as Lord and King over all things, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, He says, I pray for you, he says to the Ephesians church, I pray that you will understand um, that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And listen to this. God raised him from the dead and seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his, Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So if Jesus is Lord, and there is no power or authority over him, he is over all things in heaven and on earth, why do we experience still so much suffering? Why doesn't Jesus just fix it for his people? Why isn't there a capital D deliverance from hardship and heartache and brokenness and pain? 
we have to back up and understand a bit of a, a background context to answer that question well. When, Jewish believe, uh, when the Jewish nation understood history, the way Jewish theology understood history was that history was moving in a direction. It was linear, and it wasn't circular like pagans believed. It was linear. It had a purpose. It was going in a direction, but it was comprised of two ages, the present age and the age to come. The present age was the age that we experience now. It's under the power of sin, uh, Satan and the forces of evil hold dominion. It's, it's, a, it's a time of brokenness and pain and heartache. But at some point in the future, God was going to act decisively and bring the present age to an end and begin God's new age, not new age theology, God's new age, new creation age, where all of the, the brokenness and suffering that was part of this present age, it would be done away with. Tears would be wiped away. There'd be no more pain or sorrow. And coming out of Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones in the Old Testament, Jewish theologians said the, the sure sign that the present age is coming to an end and God's new age is beginning is going to be when God resurrects the righteous from the dead. When the righteous believers in God have been resurrected, God is going to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, this present age is now over. The righteous will be resurrected to eternal life in new heavens and new earth. And those who have turned their backs on God will be removed um, and, and condemned to an eternity apart from God. So Jewish theology saw history moving, and then there was going to be a decisive break. And then with the resurrection of all of God's people a new age would come, free from suffering or pain. Now, the first Christians, most of whom were Jewish believers who embraced Jesus as their Messiah, had to completely rethink this way of understanding the present age and the age to come. Because there had been a resurrection, but it wasn't all of God's people. It was just one righteous one. Jesus has been resurrected, which means... God's new age has been inaugurated. It has started. God has started to redeem and restore what has been lost due to brokenness and sin. But God's new age wasn't totally dominant. We seem to also be living in the present age. Suffering continued. Sickness continued. Believers continued to die. So what was going on here? And what the early Christians did is they realized, ah, oh, we're living, the way history is going to work is not one age, it stops, and another age begins. We're going to live in an overlap of the ages. That there's an overlap between the present age, can we go to the next slide, guys, and the age to come. We are living in a sinful, um, broken age But that age is beginning to disappear. It's beginning to fade away. It's beginning to pass away, Paul talks about later in the New Testament. And the new age, where God is renewing and restoring, has been established in and through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So Christians said, that's why we are experiencing both the goodness and the glory and resurrection hope is springing up in our lives individually and as communities and as families. But also, we're not completely free from suffering, sin, and death. And we won't be until Jesus comes again 
And when he comes again, that will be the decisive break. But between when Jesus first came and when he comes again, we're living in the overlap of the ages. And the New Testament continually holds up this reality before us. We're living in an age where suffering and death hasn't been completely done away with, but we're also living in an age where God is moving powerfully, where God's kingdom is being established, and it is overthrowing the power of sin and death. And it's something Paul is very honest about. In the very first chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Remember, he's writing to Christians. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles that we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we would receive the the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says, here are the two things I experience in my Christian life. Deep suffering. Suffering is a reality. Claiming Jesus as Lord, turning my life over to Jesus, has not made me immune to suffering. I haven't been rescued from all forms of suffering. One time, I despaired of life itself. It was brutal. But I've also learned to trust and rely on God. Because my God raises people from the dead. My God redeems and restores from places of complete darkness and brokenness that look like a dead end. I experience crushing pressure, even to despair, Paul says, but I also know a God who raises the dead. So Paul lives with this incredible, mature understanding of the relationship between suffering and experiencing suffering, but also not letting that overwhelm him because of the hope of the resurrection and the reality of God's power breaking into this life here and now. What was his secret? How do you, how do, you do that? How can you look at suffering and not have it overwhelm you, um, but also not avoid suffering, to just move into it and say, okay, here it is. I'm going to go into it with the power of God. What was his secret? In understanding how the resurrection transforms suffering, Christians have historically fallen into one of two extremes, and it comes out of this picture of the overlap of the ages. The first extreme is that Christians have held to something called an under-realized eschatology. I know it's Sunday morning. You haven't had your third coffee yet. Almost everything I just said doesn't make sense. It's actually pretty easy to understand. It's just fancy theology talk. An underrealized eschatology is this. First of all, eschatology is just a fancy name for studying the end times. And a lot of people just think of that as related to, well, when Jesus comes back, um, what's going to happen? And, and trying to figure out details of that. But eschatology actually has a broader under, uh, use in theology. And its broader use is what happens at the end of the age or in the overlap of the ages. What happens when God's new age breaks into our present evil age? That's the study of eschatology. So, in this overlap where we're living in the, uh, the present age, which, where sin seems to be running free, but also God's new age where good things are breaking forth and things are being redeemed, an underrealized eschatology is this. We minimize the effect of Jesus' resurrection here and now. We say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but really what dominates today, like here and now, and it will until Jesus comes back, what dominates is this present age. Jesus has been resurrected. We're going to have life eternal forever. But 
most of the promises and the power of the resurrection all get back-ended to like life after death. We really shouldn't expect too much change or transformation here and now because this pre- even though both ages are overlapping, the weight is still on this present age. Change isn't really worth pursuing. This present age is pretty much going to dictate how things go in the world. If you have an underrealized eschatology, you're going to have an exaggerated, you're going to believe that there's an exaggerated influence of sin and death in this world. That God's kingdom is breaking forth, but it's kind of like polishing deck chairs on the Titanic. The whole thing is kind of going down, and God's just throwing bones every once in a while. And this view, which tends to show up in very conservative fundamentalist Christian circles, leads to a diminished understanding of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit makes available to the church, the mission of the church. It tends to create Christians who live with a lot of fatalism and defeatism. Jesus is coming back one day, but for now, sin and darkness rule the day. What are you going to do? It just is what it is. Whatever. Just kind of deal with it, suck it up. Hold on until Jesus comes back. It can lead to a church that often withdraws from engaging in God's mission because is it really going to make a difference? Like, why don't we just show up for Sunday at church, read the Bible, pray, do something, just try and be good Christians, and then just let the world go wherever it needs to go. And so ultimately, if you hold to an underrealized eschatology, which maybe, maybe many people in this room hold to, what you're actually doing functionally is you're just accepting suffering and sin. And you're saying that's just the way it is and there's not real much, there's not much point in trying to fight against it. There's not much point in struggling against the darkness because until Jesus comes back, darkness and sin and evil is going to always win out. God's at work, but we shouldn't expect big things for myself, for my marriage, for my relationship with my kids, for my work, for my sense of vocation in the world, for our community, for our nation, for the world. Dream small. God's kingdom is breaking forth, but not in extravagant and tectonic ways. So that's one temptation where we kind of accept suffering because we have an underrealized eschatology. The other temptation is to have an over-realized eschatology. And that's the opposite direction. That's where we look at the age to come, God's kingdom, redemption, restoration, breaking forth. And we say, even though we live in the overlap of those ages, God's kingdom is coming. It's kind of like 90% to 10%. Like, yeah, there's sin and evil and suffering in the world, but the kingdom of God is coming with such force. God's new age is breaking into the world here and now in such a way that maybe not completely, but we can begin to experience pretty close to the full life of heaven here and now. That's part of, that's the good news, that God's kingdom is breaking forth in a way that is overwhelming sin and suffering and evil. This is actually an exaggeration of the influence of God's kingdom in light of the resurrection. The idea is that the blessings of God of God's future are coming to bear on us now, here and now. And this view minimizes the influence of sin and the presence of evil in our world. And I would argue it actually blows out of proportion God's new age, which is breaking into reality here and now. 
an over-realized eschatology, which tends to be nurtured in more charismatic circles, teaches that because of the resurrection of Jesus, you have access to the life of heaven here and now. Complete healing is available now. Prosperity is available now. A life of joy and fullness and complete satisfaction, perfect marriages. If you would just align yourself to God in his kingdom, if you would say the right prayers, if you had enough faith, you could access it. Jesus has secured it. You just need to access it. And when you do, you will be delivered into an entirely new kind of life. And the subtext is one of the defining features of that new kind of life will be a, a very, well, very little suffering. Because isn't it God's will that he take away all suffering? And if God's kingdom is coming and being established now, then as we participate in that kingdom, doesn't it make sense that we should experience less and less and less suffering? That, that's the way the thinking goes. Perfect love, perfect contentment. This is kind of the health and prosperity gospel. That's kind of an over-realized eschatology. You don't have to wait for heaven one day. You can have all that now. This has all been secured by Jesus, which theologically is correct. A future in a new heavens, a new earth, where we will have prosperity and wealth and full contentment and complete satisfaction has been secured by Jesus. But just because Jesus has secured something does not mean we have access to it right now. My grandmother, before she died, she secured an amount of money for our children in an education fund. My children don't get access to that right now. It's theirs. Someone else paid the price so that it could be theirs and in their name waiting for them one day but they don't get access to it now. So even though Jesus has secured these things for us, it's a real dangerous thing to say, well, therefore, we should get them now. If you have an over-realized eschatology, essentially what you will expect is a full and robust and suffering-free and victorious life in Christ right now. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you because there's not many not many options of how this is going to play out in your life. You are either going to become very disillusioned with your faith when you don't experience an abundant life right now, understood as no suffering, everything's awesome, my life just goes upward mobility all the time, health, wealth, prosperity, healing, it's just awesome. You will become disillusioned, or you'll become angry at God because you will get angry at him for not fulfilling promises that he has never made to you. Or you'll collapse into guilt and shame. Because if that's on offer for you and you can take a hold of it, take a hold of it. Well, I can't. Well, you must not have enough faith. You must be doing something wrong. You must not really believe. And so you can collapse and be um, crushed under this expectation that I should be experienced the fullness of God now. I should be able to be delivered into a resurrection life, meaning a new kind of life where suffering doesn't touch me or harm me or I'm free from all these things, but I don't. So is that a problem with God or a problem with me? And actually, an over-realized eschatology, I think, is really just a fancy way to avoid suffering. 
if an underrealized eschatology where we're just always focused on sin is a way to, to just accept suffering, I guess nothing can really change. An overrealized eschatology is just a way, I think, to kind of say, I don't even have to want to deal with suffering. And I hope that what the Bible says is now in Christ and in light of the resurrection, God's going to deliver me out of suffering into newness of life. Into newness of life, yes, but likely not out of suffering. It's a, it's a theology that wants to use the resurrection to get out from under the difficult, painful realities that afflict us here and now. And in the process, it can create a very unrealistic and anti-Christian expectation of life where we have victory over all things and victory over the power of sin and death. Now, if you read the New Testament carefully, I would argue the New Testament avoids both of these extremes. The New Testament rejects the idea that it's just the world's sinful and that's just the way it is and God's breaking through, but nothing of substance is ever going to change. But the New Testament also rejects the fact that as Christians, you should expect your life to just get progressively better, tremendous prosperity, freedom from suffering. I I don't think the New Testament teaches either of that. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul spends a lot of time in the whole book explaining how he sees suffering in light of the resurrection and how he moves through suffering. And he strikes this really powerful integrative balance between acknowledging the reality of sin and suffering while also testifying that he experiences God's resurrection and power in the midst of that suffering. In 2 Corinthians, and especially in the text we read read today, Paul doesn't accept suffering. He doesn't say, oh, what are you going to do? But he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't accept suffering. He doesn't avoid suffering. What he does is he engulfs it. He transforms it. He moves into it, neither scared of it, nor trying to um, assume that it's not there, or it can simply just be overcome with prayerful incantations. Verses 10 and 11 Paul writes this. He says, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. That's the overlap, overlap, overlap of the ages. Which is it? Are Christians always suffering or are they always experiencing victory? Paul says, well, yes. The, the death of Jesus, suffering is always at work in me because I'm a part of one age. But in the midst of that, resurrection life is, is, is coming forward. It's, it, God is breaking through in amazing ways that make a real difference. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Paul doesn't fall into either extreme. We experience death and hardship, but God uses that death and hardship to bring new life and new hope. He says, so then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's saying this is how the gospel works. The gospel that God became a human being, went to the cross to atone for our sins, was resurrected to new life so that we can be liberated from the penalty and eventually the power of sin. Manger cross crown isn't just a proclamation. This is the gospel. It is that, but it's also a process. It's the process God uses to transform us as Christians. God meets us where we are. He takes our suffering and doesn't just get us out of it. Remember, Jesus prayed, if there's any way I could get out of this, God, in in the Garden of Gethsemane, I want that, but your will be done. God often uses our suffering to bring about a new kind of reality for us here and now. Paul is saying that these deaths that he experiences, this suffering doesn't have the final word, and that somehow through what's happening to him, other people are finding life. 
He says in verse 15, all of this, all this hardship that I've had to go through, this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Paul sees his suffering as meaningful because God is using it for the benefit of other people's and his glory. Paul is actually excited because he's like, I don't know how God's doing this, but I'm suffering, and yet God is causing my suffering to be a conduit of blessing and hope to all of you. And that excites Paul. Now, if the end of your life is for you to be happy, that won't make sense to you, and that won't be exciting. But if the end of your life is to glorify God and to bless other people, it actually will be exciting. And you can see why Paul would be excited. Paul's like, I'm not, I'm not a masochist. I'm, I'm not welcoming suffering into my life. But I love how God is using it to form me to become more like him so that other people can hear about the gospel, can be transformed by the gospel, can be blessed in and through my life. I'm glad God isn't wasting my suffering. That he's recycling it in a way that leads to life and fullness when it should lead to death and despair. God never wastes a hurt. And Paul is seeing that in and through his own life. And he says in verse 16, therefore we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, we're, we're, not, we're not getting physical healing. I, Paul says, I pray for it. I ask the stone in the flesh to be taken from me, but it hasn't been. Outwardly we're wasting away. All of us right now, no matter what your theology is, you're getting older. That means more wrinkles, decreased energy, Shorter attention spans, longer attention spans? Who knows? But we're all aging. Outwardly, we're wasting away. But Paul says, but inwardly, God's kingdom is breaking forth. And I'm being renewed day by day. I don't lose heart. Even though suffering and death is a reality, God's kingdom is breaking forth in tangible ways. And this allowed Paul to live with this very strange but fascinating win-win relationship to suffering. He says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Awesome. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know that resurrection power here and now. He knew that was on access to him. But he also says, and I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I'm not trying to get out from suffering. I'm not not trying to avoid it. I have seen how God uses suffering for his glory. And therefore, there's two ways that I can know Jesus. As the resurrection power comes through in my life and I experience a growth and progress in certain areas and breakthroughs, awesome. But I'm also going to experience in this life, probably even-handedly, hardship and suffering. But there's still an avenue through which to deepen my relationship with Jesus. So whether I go through suffering or I don't, it's kind of a win-win. Now, again, Paul never says it's easy. Remember, 2 Corinthians 1, at the start of the book, he says, we despaired of life. When we were going through suffering, it was tough. Paul's not minimizing suffering. He's not saying, oh, well, God is good all the time. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. He says, I've gone through some dark places. But I don't lose heart because God is at work in those dark places. In verse 17, he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. The suffering, Paul says, that should dismantle my life. It doesn't make sense. I, I, I should be dead. I've been beaten. I've, I've been in multiple shipwrecks. I've been stoned to death or attempted to be stoned to death multiple times. I've been slandered. He talks about more of these things in Second Corinthians chapter 6. I'm a dead man. I should be dead. But God is actually using my suffering to achieve an eternal glory. 
God is using my suffering to give me weight and significance. God is causing my suffering. Some of the most superficial people you will ever meet in your life are people who have never had to suffer deeply or in a sustained way. They just don't have a lot of glory. They don't have a lot of depth to them. You meet someone with deep character and deep death, uh, depth, it's because they have faced many deaths. And if they are a glorious creature, it's because they've faced those deaths in and through the resurrection power of Jesus. Not avoiding it, but moving through it in Jesus' power. I read this week there was a, a young English uh, teenager who had the chance to sit at the feet of a preacher who had been a guest at his home. And it was kind of one of his idols growing up in the church. And he said, you know, preacher, can you tell me what the secret to your powerful ministry is? You're so influential. People come from all over to hear you speak. What's this? What's a secret? And the preacher was silent. He said, for about three or four minutes. And, and, and the, the author said, you know, I was, the whole time I was like, what's he going to say? Like my, uh, dominant knowledge of the scripture, my way with words, my ability to use illustrations to affect the heart. What, what, what's, the, what's the key that unlocks everything? And the preacher said, if I can attribute anything to my influence um, as a preacher, it is because I have had to routinely face in my life periods of prolonged loneliness. I've been very, very lonely and walked through valleys of deep loneliness for much of my life. That was his suffering. That was what he had to bear. But God used that in a particular way. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, meaning this present age. As Christians, we don't go out of our way to look at the problems and to live in defeatism. Instead, we fix on what is unseen, the age to come. We look for places where God is sowing seeds of redemption and restoration. I don't look and focus on what is temporary, this present age and its patterns fading away. I fix my eyes on what the new thing that God is doing. I don't accept suffering, Paul says, but I don't avoid it either. I engulf it and I allow God to use it to give me greater weight and significance. So finally, verse 15, I think, holds this whole thing together. There's a lot of theology there. This is some deep waters. I understand that. This is, this, is not a, um, this, is, this is not an easy thing to hear, and it's a deep thing to hear on a Sunday morning. But this is what I want your takeaway to be. In verse 15, Paul says, All of what's happened to me, all my suffering, is so that the grace is to your benefit, so that the grace is reaching more and more people and may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And here's... In the middle of this passage is a key that has totally changed my life as it relates to suffering. Our calling in suffering is to glorify God. That's how you neither accept suffering and say, oh, I guess it is. You don't glorify God by just shrugging your shoulders and just being a masochist and welcoming suffering into your life. That doesn't glorify God. But it doesn't glorify God to run away from suffering, either by like, just literally trying to avoid it or even by theologically pasting some scriptures or statements over it and just kind of pretending it's not there. Neither of those glorifies God. The way we glorify God in suffering is to not accept suffering, not avoid it, but to engulf it. And there's two things that I would say, at minimum, it looks like to glorify God in suffering. In your small groups, you can talk about what are there some other ways it looks like for you to glorify God in your season of suffering. But I think scripture points to at least two um, ways 
that apply to all of us. Number one, while you suffer, you should strive to love and serve other people. That's a very important mechanism through which you glorify God in your suffering. Jesus modeled loving and serving other people while he was moving through deepest suffering. Timothy Keller has one of my favorite lines about this. He says, even if your own troubles are great, you should still serve. Jesus washed his disciples' feet on the way to the cross. We glorify God when in the midst of our suffering, when our natural response is, well, I just want to alleviate my suffering. And once my suffering is gone, then I can care for people. I think we glorify God more when we say, in the midst of suffering, I want to love and bless other people. I'm going to take the focus off of simply alleviating my own suffering. And when you serve from that place of weakness and brokenness, the biblical Uh, The Bible teaches and our experience teaches that God can often use us in even more powerful ways than we would expect. Death is at work in us, but as we seek to love and bless other people, life gets implanted in them. And the second thing is ask, seek, and knock. As resurrection people, as people living in light of the resurrection, we should always be praying against suffering and evil. We should never accept it. We should never embrace it. So while we move into suffering and while we try not to avoid it, we are absolutely and and should feel completely confident to pray for God's healing and hope and restoration to come mightily in your life. That's not a bad prayer to pray. We see in the New Testament, and many of you can experience it or can testify to it, that God has done. The kingdom has, has broken into your lives and your marriages and your relationships and your finances in ways that are astounding and obviously uh, a testimony to the fact that God is at work powerfully in this world. And so we should, when we're experiencing suffering, not resign ourselves, but press into God more. But we should also be praying that above all, God would be glorified in, in and through our suffering. And that is a difficult prayer to pray, but I think it's one of the most God-honoring prayers that we can pray. God, if you can make this cut pass, if, if, if I, I want healing, I want deliverance from this, but God, not my will, your will be done. Your will be done. May the glory of the resurrection become so real to us that our heart's cry becomes that of Paul's who holds both of these tensions together. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Let's pray. God, we talked about a lot of ideas this morning, but the reality of suffering isn't conceptual. It is ground level, and it is real. And yet the resurrection and your, the kingdom of God, which is broken in, which is being inaugurated, has been inaugurated, is being established here and now, God, means that there is real hope. But help us to be wise in our understanding that we live in the overlap of the ages. Help us to be people who don't avoid suffering, but neither accept it, but seek to engulf it as we walk with you through it. And help us to glorify you and teach us what that means, God, as a, as a people, as your church. Teach us to glorify you through our suffering and use our suffering to reach more people with your truth and your love. Amen.
Uh, speaking of asking and seeking and knocking, I was just thinking and praying, and the idea popped into my head. Uh, it might be a good idea uh, this Thursday for me to hold uh, just a, a time of prayer here at the church, Thursday this week, 7.30, maybe for an hour, hour and a half. And if there are people who um, either on behalf of themselves or, or themselves or on behalf of someone else are walking through a time of really deep suffering, uh, I'd invite you to that. And we'll just pray together. We'll pray as a group, whether there's a few of us or a whole bunch. That's totally fine. We'll have some scriptures that we can pray over each other and encourage one another and be, and be praying for God's restoration and healing. So that'll be this Thursday. I'll send out a thing, um, but this Thursday, 7.30, here at the church. Now, before I send you off in a benediction, this is a bittersweet Sunday, more kind of bitter. Uh, Gordon Lee, can you guys come forward? After 30 years of being a part of our church, uh, Gordon Lee Dreger are moving to Acme, Alberta, next week, right? You guys leave next Sunday. Come on up here. And um, I've only known these guys for a year, but they've been a real source of blessing to me and my family. I often run into them at A&W in the mall, interrupt their little uh, social times, social circles, and, uh, and I just asked if I could pray for them uh, as they move into a new stage in their journey. You're going to be moving kind of right beside, really close to all your kids and grandkids, which is going to be a huge blessing for you guys in this new season. So why don't you join me in uh, just praying a blessing over these guys. God, we thank you for this couple and for couples that you place in your church to be a faithful, godly, steady presence across not just years, but decades. And I thank you for the encouragement and the love and the ministry that uh, um, Gordon Lee have uh, invested in this church ways that are seen and known to all of us and and also things that have been done and prayers that have been prayed that have been seen by you alone. We thank you for their faithfulness and we pray that as they move into uh, a new province and a a new stage of life and a new season of life that you would just uh, cause their hearts to be um, overwhelmed by the goodness of the Lord as you lead them into Uh, spaces where they can have more time with their children and their grandchildren to build into their lives, God. We just pray and ask for your richest blessing upon them today. Thank you for them and uh, give them traveling mercies and uh, work through all the logistical challenges of moving God and um, we just pray to hear good reports in the future from them. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. So before you guys go today, just remember to give these guys a hug and, and, and wish them well. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you know the power of Christ's resurrection, and may that resurrection power transform how you process your pain and suffering. And may God engulf your suffering in such a way that he is glorified and other people find Jesus and find life. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. Amen.